Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy will be here shortly. I think those pro-Hamas protesters have shut down the Kennedy again or something. Uh, Anyway, we uh, did a little bit of a COVID update yesterday because there are matters to update and because Senator Rand Paul has been on a recent rampage against Tony Fauci. And uh, nothing like uh, Mr. Letas Le Ma, I mean, uh, I am the state, I am science, Tony Fauci, to um, walk right into that Rand Paul buzzsaw, this BBC interview that he gave to KDK. Where he's, uh, you know, let's get you know behind the scenes. Who is Tony Fauci? Who is Mavis Johnson? What makes him tick? All the rich nuance of Tony Fauci, the man, not just Tony Fauci, the uh, vanguard against infectious disease, right? So Tony Fauci on his faith in something other than Tony Fauci. That was the question. But, of course, all roads lead back to Tony Fauci. Take a listen. There's Darwin Chapel where Chris and I were married. That's where you were married, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice. Do you still go there? Do you no. Still, you don't practice no, anymore, do you? No, no. Why? Uh, a number of complicated reasons. Go on. <laughs> we have a whole corridor. <laughs> I, first of all, I, I think... My own personal ethics on life are, I think, enough to keep me going on the right path. And I think that there are enough negative aspects about the organizational church Mm -hmm. uh, that you're very well aware of. I'm not against it. I identify myself as a Catholic. I was raised, I was baptized, I was confirmed, I was married in the church. My children were baptized in the church. But as far as practicing it, it seems almost like a pro forma thing that I don't really need to do. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Tony Foucher has evolved beyond uh, Catholicism. I mean, what do you need uh, God's grace or the first commandment for when you have Tony Fauci's celestial ethics, obviously. This is, this is, this guy's serious. Uh, Although it shouldn't be surprising because we've been here before. Uh, Perhaps um, the last person to most closely approximate the, uh, approximate the deification uh, by the DC press corps of one of our political gods would be Barack Obama. And uh, I couldn't help when I saw that clip of Fauci from that interview 
thinking of Barack Obama and when he was asked his definition of sin. Do you remember the answer he gave? Sin is something that is out of alignment with my values. <laughs> I just find it so humorous. Uh, the hubris, uh, the otherworldly hubris, so humorous. You know, who needs Christianity or any other faith tradition when you have me? And when I have me, something that is out of alignment with my, with my values because I'm the truth. So if it's out of alignment with my values, it must be sinful. What do I need the Catholic Church for? I have my personal ethics, personal Jesus there, Depeche Mode, Tony Fauci. Don't need to go. Don't need to practice. You know, the other thing about that statement that strikes me is just what an intellectual lightweight Tony Fauci is. Oh, sure, he can... Um, offer all sorts of uh, uh, industry jargon with respect to infectious diseases and particular drugs. He has specific knowledge about a very narrow area of human existence. But he gives the pat answer that a lot of, um, well, let's just stick with this, Catholics in this case give, oh, because of the church's uh, prior bad acts, I'm no longer a Catholic. Um, being a Catholic is about the faith, uh, not exclusively and even primarily the man-made organization that is supposed to be the keeper and propagator of the faith, right? Priests are human beings, so they're fallible people. They're sinners too. And this is not to excuse any bad act or bad actions that occurred within the church. And I, there's no need to relitigate it, just as Fauci glossed over it. I don't need to explain to you. You know, everybody knows. Well, everybody knows uh, a lot of the evil that occurred in the church. Uh, man is inherently evil, this just in. But to say, I don't need to abide my faith because of prior bad acts that occurred in the church and, the, and in, in combination with my superior ethics. I mean, that is just an astounding statement. I, I, I find, even when I'm, I can't really say I'm honestly surprised that Tony Fauci believes that. I am Mr. I am science. But it's just still astounding that people can say that. I mean, this is how distorting uh, the press corps is, the adulation is with all the, covers and Tony Fauci hero and Tony Fauci most respected man in the Western world and so on and so forth. And yet uh, here's the other side of the discussion on Tony Fauci. Again, Rand Paul uh, over the weekend um, re-advancing uh, the desire to open hearings into Tony Fauci and the decisions that were made during COVID and the dishonesty that predicated so many of those decisions and was used to try to cover so many terrible decisions. If uh, only the American people and their good judgment would give Republicans control of the Senate again next year since we 
missed that chance in 2022. And we have Anthony Fauci on record as saying that even if a pandemic occurs, even if a gain-of-function research infects a scientist and a pandemic occurs, that the knowledge would be worth the risk. And I think most people who had a loved one die you know, from COVID either here or around the world would disagree and think Anthony Fauci made a disastrous judgment call. But he also took the research and it didn't go before the normal scrutiny. There's a safety committee that was supposed to review this. And Anthony Fauci allowed this research to be done at his signature, at his conclusion, at his approval, without the approval of the safety committee. And this, for, for, the, for this, he really should go down in history, perhaps as one of the worst people in public office ever and responsible for probably more deaths than other, any other individual in the medical world. Well, of course, he didn't need uh, approval. He didn't need to go through the normal safety protocols, Senator Paul. Tony Fauci is the way, the truth, and the life. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answers. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560 the answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. The biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. More fallout from that uh, disastrous testimony from the university presidents at Harvard, Penn, and MIT last week. Uh, as we talked about yesterday, uh, UPenn's president, Liz McGill, is out. Will uh, Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, the first black president in the history of Harvard, will she be the next to go? New allegations against uh, Claudine Gay that have nothing to do with her testimony before that House committee last week, but everything to do with her uh, academic record. Our friend Carol Swain uh, who was uh, now uh, emeritus, but a uh, longtime professor, early tenure at Princeton, then Vanderbilt. Carol Swain was on uh, Bannon's podcast yesterday, um, more than suggesting, basically saying, that Claudine Gay plagiarized from her book, Black Faces, Black Interests, Gay plagiarizing from Swain, the oh. book that she wrote, Black Faces, Black Interests, and um, that's a problem. Yeah. 
it's a bit, bit of a problem. You know. Yes, um, in 1993, I published a book, Black Faces, Black Interests, The Representation of African Americans in Congress. That book won three national prizes, was cited uh, by the Supreme Court on three occasions, three different sites, and Library Choice Magazine selected the book as one of the outstanding uh, books uh, of its year. And so that book, there was a sentence and also part of a paragraph where she uh, used the word, but she did not put quotation marks around it. And there were there were other people, um, Frank Gillian, I believe, and and another political scientist whose work was also uh, borrowed from. And I personally, uh, I could be more willing to forgive that. Maybe that was a mistake. But I'm more concerned that her whole research agenda that earned her uh, tenure uh, at, um, I believe she was at Stanford first, and then she was hired and promoted to full professorship at Harvard, it really builds on my research. And she does not uh, acknowledge that in her articles, she has um, a, a whole list of people's, uh, of quote, of citations but she doesn't really acknowledge the fact that she's trying to refute my work. She's trying to build on my work. It's like her whole research agenda came from black faces, black interests, and the impact of my work. And I believe that her committee and the reviewers and the people who have pushed her along, they are as much to blame as she is. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in. DA than a quick comment. Yeah, it goes a little deeper than that. And uh, to Carol Swain's uh, insinuation that uh, Gay's academic record is a fraud, if this would have been properly vetted, she would have never been made a uh, professor at Stanford. She would have never got tenure. She would not be the president of Harvard University. But anyway, uh, uh, Washington Free Beacon reports in four papers published between 1993 and 2017, including her doctoral dissertation. Gay paraphrased or quoted nearly 20 authors, including two of her colleagues in Harvard University's Department of Government, without proper attribution. Uh, And this is in addition to examples that were uh, publicized by uh, Manhattan Institute's Christopher Rufo. The Free Beacon worked with nearly a dozen scholars to analyze 29 potential cases of plagiarism, Most of them said that Gay had violated a core principle of academic integrity as well as Harvard's own anti-plagiarism policies, which state it's not enough to change a few words here and there. Scholars are expected to cite the sources of their work, including when paraphrasing, and to use, of course, quotation marks when quoting directly. But in at least 10 instances, Gay lifted full sentences, even entire paragraphs, with just a word or two tweaked. And they've got some examples of the plagiarism included in the piece. Well, shouldn't she step down for that alone? Well, that was uh, what Bannon asked Carol Swain, and this is what uh, Professor Swain said. Well, based on her record, she would not have been tenured at all based on the work that she produced because it's not original path-breaking work. And so as far as the pattern of plagiarism, I think there are more things that have been disturbing about her leadership. And I do believe that she should step down as well as uh, 
the uh, remaining professor that has not uh, resigned uh, because they are not people that have the moral fortitude to lead young people. And it seemed as if they used the same uh, coaches because their responses were very similar. And we can do better in America. And as far as I'm concerned, they're pretty much destroyed the Ivy League. Well, I don't disagree with anything Carol Swain said, but I don't think Carol, uh, Claudine Gay is going anywhere. Well, and also, she's a black woman. I mean, Liz McGill's white. She's easily dispensable. Claudine well, Gay. But people, don't forget what she said. Remember, she insisted that we should consider the context on when students call for the genocide of well, that was, Jewish that, people. Well, that was that was McGill, but Claudine Gay's statements were similar in nature. I mean, all of them, as Swain said, were basically reading from the same playbook with the same middling HR speak. Yeah, that you can't uh, condemn av- anti-Semitism raging on our campus. That's what McGill said, too. I mean... So, um, yeah. But here's the thing. And and uh, Carol knows this. Carol Swain knows this, too. She's trying to appeal to Harvard's better angels. The problem is they don't exist. Uh, 700 members of the faculty and 800 black alumni of Harvard have signed a petition expressing unequivocal support for gay. 700 faculty members, that's about uh, a little less than a third of the faculty. And then all those uh, black Harvard alumni as well, all those oppressed alumni from Harvard. Mm-hmm. See, the, the thing that is missing from the discussion is an acknowledgement that performance has nothing to do with Claudine Gay's uh, presidency of Harvard. Adherence. And that's the same way with all of these institutions in government, uh, in academia, in K-12 through education, to some extent even in the arts and in corporate America. It is, it is adherence, not performance. That's the metric. Are you adhering to the party line, as it were? Let me give you an example of Claudine Gay's adherence. This is a statement that she uh, issued in 2021 about racism in America. Uh, I was happy to speak with moral clarity of sorts. I wouldn't call it moral clarity, but I would call it uh, being unequivocal. Happy to speak on that with respect to racism and police-involved shootings. Yeah, can't quite bring herself to uh, weigh in on calls for the genocide of the Jews, but but when it comes comes to other matters, she's happy to weigh in in no uncertain terms. Recent weeks have brought yet more devastating tragedies across our nation. The heartbreaking killings of Adam Toledo and Dante Wright, two young people who had so much of their lives yet to live, and the gut-wrenching testimony recounting George Floyd's final minutes, have focused this country again on the killings of African Americans and other people of color by police. The list of those whose names we know is long, and a full list would include many other names we do not know and whose deaths did not occur in broad daylight in full view of multiple witnesses or with cell phone or body cams recording. No words can capture the hurt, fear, and anger and grief felt about these tragedies by so many in our community across the country and around the world. It's appalling and unjust that people in our nation, by virtue of the color of their skin, 
face a greater risk of being killed in a police encounter if they are driving with an expired tag or a burnt-out taillight, if they make a rolling stop, if they somehow arouse a store clerk's suspicion, or if they are just coming home from a family dinner. The truth is, racism runs through the history of the United States and continues to have deadly effects on people of color in this country today. The truth is that our society is far from eradicating the evil of racism, whatever the verdict in the latest trial. We must stand against racism, commit ourselves to the unfinished work, blah, blah, blah. So um, Adam Toledo, of course, that was Chicago. Right. We we're familiar with that situation. And um, he had a gun, and, and the officer who shot and killed him was not charged with any crime. No, because he didn't commit a crime. That's right. Uh, Dante Wright was the uh, young man in Minneapolis who was inadvertently killed by a Minneapolis police officer who thought she was reaching for her taser and she reached for her gun and she didn't deploy a taser. She shot and killed him. Horrible mistake. It was negligent homicide. Yep. She was punished. There is not a single piece of evidence that suggests in any way it was racially motivated. He resisted. She responded. She responded with mistakenly and and thus by implication excessive force and she faced criminal punishment for it. But that was not an instance that supports the claim of systemic racism or police targeting uh, young black men or, or black people generally. And by the way, I mean, just a point of order. I mean, Claudine Gay might want to take judicial notice of the scholarship, the actual scholarship, not plagiarized, of Professor Roland Fryer, an economist at, Harvard black gentleman who uh, looked at this question of uh, disparate impact when it comes to police involved shootings and black Americans. And despite expecting this, his characterization, despite expecting to be able to present evidence that there was some uh, racist component. There was some targeting. There was some disparate treatment. He couldn't find any evidence looking at the actual data. And all these cases have one thing in common. They all resisted arrest at the outset. Yeah, but... Regardless of race. And and so, uh, again here, though, this is the accepted party line. This is what Claudine Gay is judged upon at Harvard. Not performance. Not her testimony before that hearing, particularly when the uh, aggrieved party are Jews and uh, anyone else with a good sense to rally behind Jewish students being uh, targeted in the way they have been on college campuses, including the Ivy League. But that's not a protected class. They're they're not uh, a part of the oppressed <laughs> the oppressed at Harvard and the Ivy League, all these oppressed kids in the Ivy League. Yeah. You know, uh, by the way, Claudine Gay. Yeah. Um, you know, because uh, she's got a high intersectional score. Right. Because she's a black female. Right. Uh-huh. Um, Claudine Gay and Christopher Ray have basically the same educational experience. Claudine Gay was sent off to boarding school at Exeter. Then it was on to Stanford and Harvard for her 
degrees, then back to Stanford, where she obtained tenure, then back to Harvard to be university president. Chris Ray boarded uh, just a little bit south of uh, Exeter, New Hampshire at uh, Andover in Massachusetts. Then it was Yale and Yale Law School, clerking for an appellate court judge over to DOJ, then to a white shoe law firm to cash out, and then to the FBI to power up. Christopher Ray and Claudine Gay are the same person. This was the point I made last week when Ray and Gay and McGill uh, and the MIT uh, president testified on the same day. It was so instructive to be able to juxtapose those two events, the testimony of the university presidents, the testimony of Christopher Ray. They're the same people. Claudine Gay could go to the FBI. Chris Ray could become president of Harvard. No one would know the difference in either institution. This is the point that Joel Kotkin makes about the coming in the coming neo-feudalism about the clerisy, the managerial elite. This is the club. And it is regulation and direction of the masses, ideologically and legally. That is their chore. They've given that power to themselves and they're implementing it. It's not performance based adherence based you're part of this club execute what we're here to execute and along the way right as you said you know there may be some people we have to sacrifice like mcgill Uh, but uh let's just keep everybody together make sure that the culture within these institutions is extended because claudine gay and christopher ray are inconsequential people in the grand scheme of things. They're cogs, and they'll be replaced, and McGill will be replaced at Penn with another cog. And don't forget, I mean, we mentioned this yesterday. She's still there. She's a tenured professor in the law department, so... Law That's school, right. excuse me. So she's, she's not really going anywhere. They're just shuffling people around. Kevin in Ogden Dunes, Indiana. Yes, this is the president of Ireland... And uh, I'd like to uh, weigh in. I spoke just recently with Governor J.B. Lizzo, and we talked about you, Mr. Dan Soft, Mr. Fancy Pants. And I will tell you that Governor J.B. Lizzo is not a fan of yours. And he said to me, if a man can be a woman, why can't a Harvard professor be an American Indian? What's wrong with that, I asked. Thanks for the call, <laughs> President. Uh, J.B. Lizzo. That is great. Yeah, I like that. Mm. Uh, I don't want to see him in the same garb that she No, wears, no, no, no. Hmm. Bill in Virginia Beach. Hey, Dan, uh, I was inspired when you, you started mentioning these terms about how uh, the unequivocal support by the Harvard alumni and the faculty for President Gay it, it reminded me of my time as a federal agent. One of the most difficult things we had to do was arrest a local police officer. And typically what you would see the, the uh, fellow department members do is line up in their uniforms at the back of the court during that initial hearing, showing this kind of unblinking, unfazed, unequivocal support that you're mentioning. Until the horrific details of what this criminal had done to his victims starts coming out. And then everybody scatters like like a cockroach with the lights going on. I'm sure as they as, as they keep digging here on on this uh, DEI hires misdeeds and nonfeasance and incompetence, uh, almost like the laptop intel officers who signed that thing. I think 
nothing but regret is waiting for these uh, people who are lending them her unequivocal support at this point. Thanks for the call, Bill. Uh, Jim in LaGrange. Hey, Dan. Hey, Amy. Um, so what's the big deal? I mean, plagiarism, majorism. I mean, it worked out okay for the big guy. But in the yeah. grand scheme of things, Dan, I think you talked about it. You know, this is a blip on the radar. And the real issue is the, the degradation of, of the whole system in our country. The moral value drops. The values drop. The standards drop. And this becomes acceptable. That's the biggest problem. This is not an anomaly anymore. It becomes part of the vernacular. And that's, that's why America is in decline right now. Thanks. Have a good day. Thanks, Jim. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is The Morning Show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, Kate Steinle Redux, more angel moms and dads being created every day in America because of the political ruling class's refusal to make sense of our border security, to do commonsensical things with respect to the provision of public safety for Americans. And frankly, uh, even for people in this country illegally who are otherwise law-abiding. Of course, this comes to us from Texas, and the story of high school cheerleader Elizabeth Medina, who was stabbed to death and left in her bathtub by a person in this country illegally living in the U.S. on an expired visa. A 23-year-old was charged, uh, was arrested Saturday on a capital murder charge in the killing of this 16-year-old girl from Edna High School. $2 million bond. Kate Steinle... Uh, examples here, uh, Jeannie Brady from Mahomet, uh, of course, Denny McCann, our friend Brian McCann's brother, who was killed on the streets of Chicago, hit-and-run driver who fled, just finally, decade-plus later, was extradited and uh, from Mexico. And um, I, I, I guess that uh, trial is still pending. Yeah, we've had him on the show too. But that's not that's no justice. 
No motive for the stabbing yet. Uh, not sure if the uh, alleged killer knew her or not, but regardless, he shouldn't have been here. He shouldn't have been able to kill her, and she's gone. 312-642-5600. Excuse me. Turnkey.pro answer line. 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. And here locally, it's not something as serious, at least not yet. But, I mean, it just speaks to what's happening. Last weekend, a Cook County judge ordered a Venezuelan migrant to remain jailed as a public safety threat after prosecutors accused him of showing up at a woman's doorstep with a gun. Because, you know, we take uh, crimes that involve guns very seriously. That's what Kim Fox is focused on, crimes involving guns. That's why she doesn't have time to worry about uh, Jesse Smollett or some of these or people who steal less than $1,000 worth of other people's stuff and so forth. Shortly after midnight on December 2nd, Chicago police responded to a home in the 1500 block of West 64th after a woman reported a man banging on her door saying he had a, a gun. When they arrived, they saw him standing across the street from the woman's address. He tried to walk away, didn't get very far. They patted him down, found a loaded 9mm ghost gun tucked in his waistband. He told officers he got into a dispute with another migrant family while living in the Inglewood District Police Station. And his cousin left the firearm for him to use as protection. That's all well and good. That's not exactly how it works. Um, So he was charged with felony aggravated unlawful use of a weapon. So what's the problem, Dan? I'm glad you asked. The uh, judge in the case, the initial judge in the case, ordered him jail to await trial a week ago Saturday. But then on Friday, another judge released him from custody with instructions to show up from court and stay out of trouble. Um. Yeah, that's that's your Pritzker purge law in full effect. No uh, electronic monitoring, by the way. Um, yeah, interestingly, that release on the felony unlawful use of a weapon charge, yeah, is despite the fact he has a misdemeanor battery case pending in the suburbs. Prosecutors say he hit a woman in the forehead at an Oakland motel on August tenth. Failed to show up to court on November sixteenth. So he had a pending misdemeanor battery case in the suburbs. He didn't show up to court. And a Cook County judge nonetheless released him on his own recognizance on a felony UUW charge. That's Cook County. That's the Pritzker Purge Law. I mean, which, of course, Cook County had been applying de facto before it was the official law of the land of Lincoln. I mean, again, as we speak, we have 92 people. Out on electronic monitoring who have committed violent crimes, carjacking, attempted murder, rape. It makes no sense. You should be happy they're out on electronic monitoring. Oh, so and not at least just we on their own recognizance. Yeah. Well, to the extent they people I mean to the extent that those monitoring the those on monitors know where they are. We have no idea. And so uh, what's going on because uh well, what's going on with the criminal justice system? That's self explanatory. What's going on with the provision of uh, lodging for migrants in Chicago? It's confusing. It's difficult to follow. It shouldn't be surprising that it's difficult to follow because when you have no plan and you're just um, flying by the seat of your pants on an hourly basis, 
it is going to be confusing to those watching and trying to figure out what is the plan. Well, there is no plan, so we're, you know, making it up as we go along. Well, I can tell you 56 shelters are uh, are catering to migrants right now. And those that five of those include park districts. We don't know if there's going to be a migrant tent base camp deal or not. We still don't know. They took to, they took soil samples for that uh, that shutter grocery store at 115th and Halstead, waiting right. for the results of those. Ponce de Leon, Ugh. great explorer, was the uh, face of all of this. By the way, she uh, was at this uh, little village meeting about the shuttered CVS that's being used as a migrant shelter in Little Village at uh, 26th and Pulaski. She said this. At this moment, we don't have a firm commitment to open a base camp. It's still an option on the table, and we will continue to explore it. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Um, Alderman uh, Mike Rodriguez of the 22nd Ward, so that would uh, encompass this migrant shelter uh, that's, that, that's the CVS, the old CVS is being turned into, Two, 200, 300 beds? Yeah, that's it. Uh, hey, this is a joint... So, again, I just just to disabuse any who might have thought that, oh, the governor really stood up to BLM Brandon and he's laying down the law and this thing is getting organized and uh, he's not on board with what's going on in the city and so on and so forth. The state of Illinois will be funding the sites. The city of Chicago will be operating, however, and it will be a part of the city of Chicago system. Right. (laughs) I think uh, what you had said uh, earlier in the week, or maybe it was last week, Amy, that this is just uh, Pritzker's desire to have this out of sight, out of mind. So set it up in an old CVS. We don't need big, garish tent camps. No, because it'll make him look bad. And he doesn't want that because eventually he wants to be president. But also the DNC is in August. That will be here sooner than we know. And he doesn't want that look for Chicago. Well, you also have to figure it out between now and the spring, particularly as migrants are continuing to be bust and particularly when the weather gets warmer Oof. in the spring into the summer and uh, people can you know, live on the streets, set up the tent camps in front of police stations and elsewhere as they did previously. Something else, too. Such this is eyesore. I, I don't know. It's unclear to me. But there's um, video... Concerning a, a warehouse in Pilsen, oh yeah, twenty two forty one South Halstead, which has been uh, one of the sites for uh, migrant shelter before, but but earlier uh, in the fall it was sort of advertised as may sort of like the CVS, maybe a couple three hundred beds. There's a report. This is unconfirmed, but a reporter, sort of basically more or less a. Um, uh, civilian reporter, this guy Ben Bergquam from Real America's oh, Voice. Yeah. He went and toured all the shelters over the weekend. Yeah, but, and he is suggesting, based on what he was hearing from people on the street, that this warehouse may have as many as 3,000 illegal migrants Ooh. packed into it. That's what he suggested based on what somebody on the street said. Now, that's not, that's just hearsay, but it's a big warehouse. It is a huge warehouse. It's almost a city block long. But I don't uh, know how wide it is, but I, I mean, who knows? But there's no windows, too, so you can't see in the place. Right. It's one story. So. Well, the interesting thing, though, too, is so where is this? Where is the action taking place? It's what I said before. In the uh, majority Latino wards uh, and communities 
or those communities that have a significant Latino population. St. Bart's and Portage Park is another one. Identitarian politics. And I have to get this off my chest. At the end of Chicago, which is a block away from Michigan Avenue, they kick them out every day because uh, room service comes and takes the sheets and, you know, the, the maids come. Can't you do that yourself? I mean, they're not doing anything all day. You can't pick up your own trash. You can't wa- launder your own sheets. It's such well, a I, racket. Three well, meals a day, they get laundry service. Do they have access service. to the laundry room? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just, a hotel. I know, but they're still operating as a hotel, even though it's not a hotel. Those are not paying customers. Those are people that no. are sucking off the government. They're paying customers. We're paying. Yeah. And so we want them to have nice accommodations. We <laughs> you want to be called unwelcoming? <laughs> you want to try and live that down? <laughs> we have Clay, to that sound bite. Clay in Libertyville. <laughs> yeah, no, more, no, no longer uh, Clay in Downers Grove. Morning, Dan and Amy. Hey, uh, I want to know where this Venezuelan migrant got a handgun, let alone bullets along with it. I'm trying to coach through one of my coworkers the process of trying to get a FOID card in this godforsaken state. And he is screaming about how this is absolute H-E double hockey stick for him. So I want to know how, how a Venezuelan migrant just goes and gets a handgun and, and bullets along with it. Because there's no way that thing was cheap if he bought it on the secondary market. And I really doubt he has a FOID card. Well, he doesn't. Reminder: straw purchase. Yes. He said. Uh, he, yeah. said he said. He said. He. Uh, the. The report was that his cousin left it for him. Oh. Somebody, oh. Was, who was his was cousin? Good. How did he get it? I. I don't know. Uh, I mean, just a reminder too that AR ban is coming on January first. So uh, I think they rough, roughly have point oh four percent is what they estimate the uh, number of registered ARs is. So. <laughs> Right. I will yeah. chuckle along with that as well. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, yeah. thanks for the call. Oh, safety first. Right. Uh-huh. Safety first. Uh, you know, uh, Clay with his uh, sport rifle in Libertyville, a threat to the public order. The uh, Venezuelan migrant who's uh, banging on some woman's door with a loaded weapon that he doesn't, uh, he can't legally own in this state. While on, uh, well, while facing a misdemeanor battery charge in the suburbs, you're free to go. No, we don't have any problem with you. Got a text message as we come to Christmas and watch Christmas Story. Did you recall, Dan and Amy, that the director, Robert Clark, was killed in a traffic accident by an illegal alien? I did not recall that. Oh, interesting. Dan and Amy, asylum seekers have been scattered all over the country. Why not set up a dedicated temporary court, maybe Wrigley Field, and start the hearings? Have buses pre-staged to start sending them home when their asylum claim is proved to be a fraud? Well, uh, why not? Because um, the political class in Chicago doesn't want to send them home. That's why not. Don't forget that. Don't forget that the um, starting point here is this is not a problem. This is an opportunity. That's what this political class is thinking. They see opportunity here, not a problem. They just need to figure it out. George in Naperville. Yeah, Dan, do you think they can use a big chunk of these migrants to protect our mayor so the police could do police work and maybe they can wear wild uniforms like Gaddafi had, you know, for his crew? <laughs> Thanks for the call, George. 
I like those. Uh, wasn't Gaddafi the one who had like those fembots as his security? Oh yeah, detail? yeah. The seventy women traveled with him, and yeah. remember they set up a tent. They were in New Jersey. Well, they're in New York at the UN headquarters for something, and he brought yeah. his entourage with him. He, that guy knew how to party and very, to travel. Yes. Very Doctor Evil. Yes. Uh-huh. Bob in Buffalo Dr. Grove. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for taking my call. Besides the migrants, there's also the issue of the homeless. Two weeks ago, I was downtown. Going down, getting on the Kennedy at uh, Madison Street. I'm going, what's going on here? There's a guy walking down the ramp to go on to the Kennedy. He was going right alongside me, and then I followed him down the ramp. And then I well, well, I mean, you should, the, you should, you should let him merge. I mean, come on. <laughs> Did he be... have his blinker on, Bob? I mean, come on. But uh, I, I looked um, down, and it appears to be an encampment. Between the median of the outbound and the inbound, Kennedy, at about uh, Randolph Street. Yeah. There was a couple of uh, homeless living down there. Well, I was okay. on uh, West Garfield Thanks, Boulevard Bob. on Saturday. I had an event or had something to do on West Garfield. Then I drove down Roosevelt, and I, the Roosevelt and the Dan Ryan, is there is the largest encampment I have ever seen. There's got to be hundreds of homeless people there. It's such an eyesore. But they choose to live that way because they've offered them help and they don't want help. They want to keep their tents. Uh, Well, I'd be a little skeptical of help from the city, too. But, you know, (laughs) Marty in Naperville. Good morning. First of all, you better start showing some respect because these are going to be officers of the law soon. (laughs) And what could what could possibly go wrong there? Um, And a place to house them. I'll send them out of Comiskey Park. There's nobody there anyway. Hi, oh. Thanks for the call. Marty. I mean, why not? I mean, everyone wasn't everybody, every alderman supposed to step up and come up with a place to have a tent or two. I think well, Andrea Vasquez, my best friend in the world, should use Winnemac Park. It's a huge space. Just set up a tent there right next well, to Amundsen High School. That'd be great. Well, that's what I don't understand. I guess um, some it. of these alder humans are a little bit leery of being perceived as not uh, enthusiastic about uh, migrant shelters in their ward. But. Well, I he's the face was, of this, and he's not uh, uh, stepping uh, uh, up. Uh, okay. Well, I said, if I can finish. Yeah. I, I thought the the uh, charge was a two acre site in all fifty wards. Mm-hmm. So, when do we get the site map for those two acre sites in every ward? Otherwise, this seems like you're disproportionately burdening the majority Latino wards uh, to um, the benefit of the other wards. Doesn't anybody want to make that case? Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, I don't know if you caught uh, BeautyCon in L.A. uh, this year. BeautyCon? Of course I was there. I was this featured attraction. (laughs) There were uh, some plus-size models there. Arguing against the, uh, you know, the the pervasive body shaming that exists in American culture, and uh, one of the ways to combat the body shaming 
is to prohibit fat phobia as a matter of law. I don't know if I should be part of this conversation. Colorado, which uh, ironically is America's slimmest state, you oh, know, a yeah. lot of outdoorsy type people in Colorado. Yeah, a lot of hiking and bike trails. It's beautiful. Fly fishing. Yeah. Um, that's a, it, a Colorado said to become the first state in the U.S. to ban fat phobia by law. Uh, politicians uh, in Colorado and elsewhere are planning laws to add a person's weight to the list of characteristics such as race, age, religion, sexual orientation that are protected from discrimination. Right. The only, uh, again, the only uh, group it's okay to discriminate against, uh, heterosexual, white, Christian men, basically. Uh, Fat pride groups uh, are uh, pushing Pauls in other states New York, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Jersey, also considering laws prohibiting fat phobia. Illinois, you would think, would be center stage on this. I don't know why. I just think it would. Because our governor can't see his feet? Okay. Oh, no, that was, you know what? That was rude. That was rude. Cities across the country have started passing laws aimed at preventing discrimination against the fat. Oh, my God. Uh, San Francisco, D.C., and last month, New York among them. The uh, drive for fat acceptance, uh, they are more about ideology than health because, of course. Um, uh, one in can, six U.S. deaths are linked to obesity. One in six. No. Well, it's more about uh, more about ideology than health because conservative states that have the worst obesity pro- problems in the country, like West Virginia and Kentucky, are having uh, no luck with uh, moving such fat phobia, laws prohibiting fat phobia. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Because, I, I I mean, I'm guilty of it. I, I admit it. My kids know it. Everybody knows. It's it's awful. I, I have a you problem You hate with fat them. people. No, I just, no, I don't hate them. I just work so hard you just want to be in to, shape that I just want them. To go away. Them. No, I, it's just, again, one in you six want them, die You want them because, beaten. You want them starved. No, I, I don't. You want them imprisoned. Well, my, my you want them put on an island, but not Guam because it could tip over. Exactly, or Jeffrey Epstein's island. No, I um my fat phobia grew during COVID because fat people destroyed my children's life, and probably anybody else out there, their kids or grandkids. Because seventy nine percent of the people who were hospitalized who died from COVID or died were obese or morbidly obese. So yeah, that it 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 grew exponentially during COVID. Um, I don't know. I kind of want to see more dudes uh, feeling less uh, insecure about their body, uh, walking around like Sam Smith in some sort of sequin, skin-tight, one-piece, gyrating, and so on and so forth. I think it would just be fun, right? You know? Oh, my um, God. I'm looking at pictures from BeautyCon in L.A. Yeah. Plus-size model Tess Holiday. Yeah. That's not plus. That's plus, 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 plus. Well, there's one plus, two pluses, three pluses. What's the difference? It's sort of the same thing with uh, gender fluidity, don't you think? Ooh. Uh, yeah. I, so what's like... going to happen to me if I, I mean, maybe I go see a doctor about my, that I'm, I, I'm not celebrating fat pride? What about reparations for those who've been discriminated against because of their girth? Like um, everybody 
that has a BMI over 30 gets a gets a free rascal and we have to pay for it. Something like that. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Ugh. I don't know. You know? They're called fat acceptance campaigners. Yeah, well, there's a lot of um, that. That's the uh, the, the, these t- these uh, plus size models are all over the place. I mean, in addition to an ads, but like uh, the tabloids are always featuring that Ashley Graham. Is that her name? Who's that? She's a she's some she's a plus size model. She's not quite as big as that Tess Holiday, but she's definitely oh, plus size. You know, I mean, um, big is beautiful. Who who decided that? Why are we celebrating obesity? Obesity kills you. Leads to high blood pressure. You become diabetic. You might have well, organ failure. I well, mean, think I mean, of all that weight on your heart and your knees, like, carrying just, that all around. Just your natural um, physiognomy, I guess, they would argue. And So am I going to go to jail be, if I visit Colorado? Um, possibly. Yeah, possibly you could be imprisoned. Um, sent to a, a work camp. Set to, I don't know, be like a... a Servant of Lizzo's or something, you know, do like one of those punishments like that uh, judge in Ohio did to the woman that threw the food at the Chipotle worker. What's my 60 days working in a fast food. So like you would have to be like you would do like uh, 60 days um, uh, having well in Colorado. But I mean, if we made it Illinois, if Illinois passed this kind of law, which I would think a state is enlightened in Illinois when it comes to bigotry, particularly against the uh, big boned would be uh, on this job. But you would have to, for example, like serve J.B. Pritzker lunch for 60 days. Oh, my God. But I have to tell like you, I was big. Job of the hut. I have been big. I was 180-something pounds. 180 pounds? No, no. After, after I had two babies back-to-back, Dan, and I oh, yeah. was big. I had to go to Lane Bryant. You had to go to Lane Bryant? <laughs> big and tall store? No, Lane Bryant. That's for plus sizes. I'm not kidding you. I went to, where was I, Express or somewhere with my sisters and nothing fit. So we went across the street to Lane Bryant and I found clothes. Well, maybe that's your um, that's your natural weight. And if we weren't such a culture mm-hmm. that fat shames, you wouldn't be so obsessed with your yoga classes and doing Staying all that classes. stuff and being, you know, to getting down to, you know, whatever, 105 pounds or how much. I don't weigh now. myself. I just make sure I can fit into the same pair of jeans that I want to fit into. Mm-hmm. But I've yeah, been big. I have it. been there. And you know what? You're uncomfortable. And when you're uncomfortable, you're not happy, nor are the people around you. You know what helps? If you feel uncomfortable, you know what helps? What? Cheeseburger. <laughs> Stop it. Greg in Jefferson Park. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Amy, I can uh, solve your fatism problem and being a fattist or whatever the new words are going to be for this. I'm making Christmas cookies right now, so why don't you come over and I'll just, you know, you know have you eat about 40 of them and Mm-mm. put on some weight and Mm-mm. get with the program, girl. Mm-mm. I don't like sugar. For the call, Do not like sugar. Don't like desserts. I don't like any of that. If I had cookies, I'd be on the floor. Wait, we've had donuts here before, and I would have a fourth of a donut and just be knocked out. Maybe you should attend a, a Fat Pride group <laughs> meeting and um, and listen to, you know, their concerns, their their challenges, their know. heartaches. It's just I maybe, travel maybe a lot, you could, too. And maybe you could be a little bit more empathetic. I, I travel so much, and just to see the, ugh, these people get on a plane, I'm thinking, dear Lord, I mean, they didn't make the seat for that. We need bigger seats on planes. 
Well, that's a, that's a, a sort of the institutional discrimination against the uh, big boned is these seats that uh, have not been updated to um, be respectful of the reality. Oh, got a text message. In 21st century America. Amy, you are not alone. I, too, knew many obese people, and they died young. My mother had a weight issue. She died at 56, never seen me get married, never becoming a grandmother. Sad to see fat people. I feel like they're the walking dead. Did you see the picture that uh, Trump posted of Chris Christie in shorts? Um, you know what? Nobody needs to see that, Dan. Why would you even bring it up? Because people should I see it. Okay. I mean, that, that, that'll maybe get you to put down that piece of chocolate cake if you saw that picture. All right. I'm going to look at it now. That's, that's better than Jenny Craig. Just, uh, just put the, if you if you think you need to lose weight, just uh, put that picture of Chris Christie in shorts on your refrigerator. You won't open that door for a month. Ooh, I'm just saying. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Jeff in Dundee's got some uh, local info. Jeff, thanks <laughs> thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Dan, Amy, good morning. Anyway, there's a uh, hotel out here, the Holiday Inn out here on uh, 31 in the Tollway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They used to have a fat convention out here, and uh, one of the they give away pamphlets on how to handle you know your hygiene and so on and so forth. And one of the pamphlets was how to prevent uh, yeast infections from your fat folds. <laughs> I guess you gotta lift them up and wipe them off. Or well, you something. do. No, you do. I'll They'll be there's like what's that cheesy stuff called? What is that thing? Yeah, you got to. Uh, I don't. I don't. Thanks for the call, Jeff. I'm, I'm no, you just... have to clean those fat folds. I'm not kidding you. Uh, I it's mean, look, I, I take your word for it. I think Brandon Johnson's got 115 police. Pritzker has 115 manservants to clean all the gunk out of his folds. Uh, Gabby Schomburg, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. You guys are taking my thunder. I was going to mention. We should feel sorry for them because they're not going to be around long, so no need to pass a law. And then I was thinking how many people that Pritzker has to clean out his folds. He is rotund. He looks like he got even bigger. But anyhow, uh, that's it, guys. Have a great day. I Thanks just don't understand. You're, you're a billionaire a few times over. Why wouldn't you hire a nutritionist, start working out, or, or get the lap band surgery? Who ate through their lap band? Was it a uh, Bill Belichick or Chris Christie? Bill Belichick. Yeah, oh, he got. Oh, yeah, he had something done. Uh, no, I think Chris. I don't know. Christie may have. One of them ate through it. I think it's Chris Christie. Well, could he be. ate through his lap band. Chris Christie. I'm gonna Google uh, it right now. You see him in shorts. It looked like he ate through most of New Jersey. Uh, Bill and Waukegan, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan and Amy, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just want to say that when I. I get on an airplane, I, I look for the biggest woman, uh, especially when I travel transatlantic, uh, mm-hmm. that I can sit next to just in case that baby goes down. Because now I have a not only a life preserver, but I have a raft uh, oh, as well. So uh, thank you. That's, thank you very much. that's right. rude. Oh, <laughs> now you're the arbiter <laughs> of what is that's right not and funny. proper. Yeah. Well, it's, you know it's bad when planes are running out of seatbelt extenders. Hey, uh, Rick in Downers Grove. Hey, good morning. Hey, I'm always thinking of business opportunities, and yeah. the one person that called about the uh, 
you know how you got to lift the fat to clean up underneath there? Well, you just take one of those drive-through or do your uh, drive-through car wash, and you just lay the person down. You strap uh, strap her on her feet, hoist them up, and then let them go through because all the fat will go in the other direction, and you get everything squeaky clean. Holy okay. Cow. Wait, real quick. Right. When Chris Christie was married, he was thin. You got to see these pictures of him. He looks like a different person, and he did go under. He did undergo uh, lap band surgery, but he ate through it. Yeah, remember? Uh, didn't but like, when he was a skinny Chris. Wow. Didn't Leslie Stahl ask him like, "Why you're so fat?" And he and he said uh, like a sixty minutes interview back in the day, mm-hmm. and he said, "You know, I don't know. I'm hungry, and then I get hangry." <laughs> uh, he said, "I don't. I don't know if I knew I'd do something about it." Um, but you said, "You know, I. I don't know. You know." When he was 50, he told Matt Lauer that he underwent surgery on February 16th before the President's Day holiday weekend, um, the lap band surgery. So that was in 2013, ooh, 10 years ago. Well, you know, right, uh, there's a pill, there's a surgical procedure, and then there's these other dynamics at play, too. Although, I got to say, that cleaning out the fat folds thing, I mean, that could be a way to break into politics. It's like the old joke about the guy who cleans up uh, the elephant dung in the circus, right? Oh, and it was New York Jets coach Rex Ryan. He had the lap band surgery and lost 100 pounds. Not Bill Belichick. Okay, all right, you're having your own conversation. I am. Uh, I'm talking to myself. As is usual, Ralph and Rantoul. (laughs) Thank you, Dan. Well, good morning. Uh, it was Chris Christie, but the lap band, if you uh, do a little research on it, it's just like a giant rubber band. It's uh, it's synthetic calamari, and Chris Christie ate his. <laughs> All right, Ralph, Lisa in the north suburbs. Hi, you guys. How come Amy, have you not seen She's on Ozempic on Jones. She's lost like a million dollars. Wait, I can't, Wait, I can't, can't really hear you, hear you Lisa. The... You have to talk into the phone. Wait, you guys, MK has lost a great Oh, MK. You're, you're, you're still not talking again. on is somebody, your phone. Is, is somebody kidnapping you? Are you being chloroformed? Wait, okay, so have you guys... So MK is on Ozempic, and she has lost a major home. How can you ask me? Yo, dude. All right, thanks for the call, Lisa. So MK, that would be Jelly Belly's wife, is on Ozempic, and she's lost major pounds. That's the claim. Well, Pritzker should be on Ozempic. I mean, it's well, the easy way out, but do something. Well, I mean, you have that, children. Uh, you, well, that is well, not sustainable. Uh, okay, uh, hey, Dr. Jacobson. Yes, sir. Do, do, we, have, do we have an understanding of, of the um, side effects of using Ozempic as a diet drug? I don't think we do. No. Wasn't Heather Lockler wandering around in a haze because she was all wired up on Ozempic and probably other things, too? Um, yeah, Sharon, yeah. Well, Sharon Osborne took it. She said now she can't gain weight. And she's uh, near. Have you seen a picture of her? Oh, my God. What about Katie Clarkson? Did she just lose a bunch of weight? Oh, she lost a ton of weight. I'm well, sure she's she on, I'm sure she's on Ozempic. Well, how'd she do that? You don't well, know. I don't. I don't know. But she has lost at least I, I bet fifty, sixty pounds so far. Jesse Jackson Jr. Remember Jesse Jackson oh, Jr. Right. got the lap band surgery, and he pretended it was through diet and exercise. He yeah. like lost fifty pounds over a weekend. Oh, yeah, diet and exercise. <laughs> yeah, okay. But all these skinny, you know what's in my neighborhood are on Ozempic, and their heads look weird because their head, their body shrinks, but the head stays the same, and it just is the strangest look. The skinny male impersonators that are married to some of your friends. Jackie and Paw Paw, Michigan. 
Hi, guys. I'm a retired, um, I started as a stewardess, and then all of a sudden I was a flight attendant. I was back in the 70s and 80s. We had weight check. Flight attendants had to get on a scale four times a year. And now I get on an airplane, flight attendants are fatter than the passengers. They can't get down the aisle. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Jack. It's one of the great tragedies uh, in American history, what happened to flight attendants between the 80s and the 21st century. I had a a tranny the other day. Mm. I think I sent you a picture of him. Not great. Her or him, whatever. But you know what? What bothers me? The dude had a skirt on and didn't bother to shave his legs. Okay. I think we need to elevate this conversation. Stay tuned for Frank's History Minute. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, uh, baby boy Hunter Biden making the unusual public appearance, at least appearance of sorts, on Moby's podcast. That's a entertainer, right? Singer, Moby? Y- yeah, this just in. Moby know, is a washed-up just... singer. He's, I mean, he was—he was, he was uh, eulogized by Eminem 15 years ago. You don't know me. You're too old. Let go. It's over. Nobody listens to techno. Moby, now you're relegated to flacking for Hunter Biden. Well, you got the get of a lifetime, you know. Uh, they're trying to kill him. You people, you, you uh, right wing extremists, you're trying to kill baby boy Hunter. They are trying to, in the in in their most uh, illegitimate way, but rational way, they're trying to destroy a presidency. And so it's not about me. In oh, no, not their all. most base way what they're trying to do is they're trying to kill me knowing that it will be a pain greater than my father could be able to handle what a smug you know what uh Uh, your dad didn't do the 1.5 million in crack and all that prostitutes you did that uh abby lowell is baby boy hunter's attorney he was on morning joe to uh, pitches wares continue to uh, try to advance the narrative that uh, Hunter Biden is being maltreated because his last name is Biden. He's being he's being treated unfairly. He's not getting any benefits. He's being treated unfairly because his last name is Biden. That's the line. This was a complete surprise to us, notwithstanding we had been in contact with him. Indeed, I think about a week ago, I called the U.S. Attorney's Office for a status check so that I could come in and talk to them if they had any idea that they wanted to bring any additional charges after the gun charges. And at the time of that telephone conversation, they said, no, you already had that meeting. Well, that was based on their investigation years ago. So I said, I want a new meeting. And what they said was, well, we don't know we can do it. I wrote a letter both to David Weiss and copied the attorney general saying, if there's any new evidence, then we should come in and address it. If there's no new evidence, then how can you justify anything other than what you did in June? And their response was first silence and then the indictment without any communication back to me. You know, again, 
if I've done this work, I am in the defense bar. That's not the way it works. Prosecutors engage with defense attorneys to discuss the investigation and the possible charges. It's just yet another way that Hunter's been treated differently than others in similar circumstances would be treated. It's because he is the son of the president who's named Biden. The Republicans and anybody else that's been investigating on the right wing media, for example, have tried and tried to say that President Biden has done something wrong. They can't find a shred of evidence because he hasn't. And yet they want this to be an issue. And what they've successfully done, because they go out on the way, airwaves and people don't understand the difference between truth and misinformation, is basically saying, OK, I can't get the president, so I'll besmirch his son in a way to suggest that there's something going on between the two of them. That's why it is because his last name is Biden, because of his proximity to his dad, who has been a supportive father to his son through all the best and worst parts of Hunter's life. Hmm. Uh, for response to uh, Councillor Lowell, we're pleased to have Councillor McCarthy, Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York, Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller, Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. When will this, when will this witch hunt against Hunter Biden stop? <laughs> Let me get my violin out. Right. Um, <laughs> So, you know, look, Abby's a good lawyer, and but you have to understand he's got only – he's not like working for the truth or, you know, for like some uh, committee that's trying to get to the bottom of it or even a political committee that's not trying to – you know, whatever. He works for Hunter Biden. His job is to spin everything. You know, he's not like a prosecutor who has an obligation um, not to misstate. Facts. I, I, you know, I get that prosecutors don't fulfill that obligation all the time, but that is it's a different gig than being a defense lawyer where your job is not to tell the truth. Your job is to put the government to its burden of proof. So obviously he's going to say whatever he says in a way that's uh, best um, geared toward making people sympathetic to his paying client. Um but the fact of the matter is, if if this defendant's name wasn't Biden, he had been prosecuted in the normal course probably by 2019, maybe 2020. Right. Uh, and he would probably have been looking at a lot more than tax and gun charges. Uh, it, there would have been a possibility of going after him on uh, foreign agent registration violations, money laundering, potentially bribery. Um because he's, his name is Biden and he's being investigated by the Biden Justice Department, they brought in a prosecutor who dragged his feet, not so much for Hunter's benefit, but what he, the, the foot dragging on this accomplished was the, a lot of the most egregious, apparently criminal behavior that happened here uh, happened between 2014 and 2016 when Joe Biden was vice president. That stuff will never be prosecuted now because David Weiss, uh, the prosecutor on this case, did ne never filed charges and never addressed the fact that the statute of limitations was lapsing as he was delaying because that was the objective. So it's now almost 2014. The statute of limitations on most federal crimes is five years. On most tax crimes, or the relevant tax crimes, it can be six years. But, you know, at this point... We're like eight years after some of the worst behavior occurred. 
So they've made sure that that can't be prosecuted. And this idea that, you know, he hasn't been the, the Biden defense camp hasn't been consulted by the prosecutors. When they tried this plea, the sweetheart plea deal in July, um, I was astonished at the fact that it was very clear Hunter's lawyers had actually drafted a lot of what was in the plea arrangement, particularly the statement of facts um, or what they called facts uh, that the government signed off on. The usual practice in federal law enforcement is the government writes the plea agreement and the government writes any diversion agreement and the government drafts the statement of facts. Uh, here, the solicitude toward Hunter was unbelievable, just as unbelievable as the fact that they tried to trade this very significant tax case away on two puny misdemeanor counts, which no one not named Biden would ever get that kind of treatment. And even worse, they tried to make the gun case, which involved, you know, a 10 year felony, completely disappear with no prosecution at all under a diversion agreement in circumstances where diverting for that particular offense under the circumstances of it is against Justice Department rules, such that when the court asked a few simple questions about it, the deal collapsed. Not because the judge was asking hard questions, just asking like normal questions about what's the scope of the agreement. They wouldn't even fess up to that because what they were trying to do was give this guy a complete pass. Well, do you think he'll spend any time in jail? I know he faces up to 17 years. Well, if he was if he was my son and I was the president, he would not spend a day in jail. I mean, if it was if um, if I had the pardon power and, you know, look, you, you shouldn't do it. And a, a president who pardons his son under these circumstances, or probably under most circumstances, uh, should resign because it's an abuse of power. But I wouldn't let my sons get sent to the penitentiary. Well, especially if he was uh, filling my pockets, which uh, oh, yeah. uh, appears to be the case, despite Abby Lowell's and Jamie Raskin and the Dems uh, line that there's no evidence uh, that uh, links Joe Biden. The evidence continues to mount with each passing pronouncement from Jim Comer at the House Oversight Committee. Now, yes, there's some additional dot connecting that needs to be done because there's some additional questions that need to be answered, prompted by the evidence that has been uncovered. But um, this uh, whole line that there's no evidence, you know, frankly, the public isn't buying it. The public wasn't that didn't buy the Russian collusion hoax. And they're not buying that uh, Joe Biden had nothing to do with his son's multimillion dollar business. Yeah, Dan, that's a, that's a great point. And I think it's one that people um, should should kind of um, take in in this sense. I keep getting asked. So these guys are going to completely get away with it. Like nothing's going to happen to them. And my response to that is, look at what's already happened to them. Comer's been running this investigation for 10 months. What is the public appraisal of President Biden over the last 10 months? It's not, a, it's not, it's not solely because of this investigation, but it's had an enormous impact on the public perception of Biden. It's part of the reason his numbers are cratering. It's part of the reason they're in a hot panic now over whether he can be reelected. Uh, I wanted to um, switch over and get your reaction to uh, what the special counsel prosecuting uh, Donald Trump did yesterday and seeking to leapfrog the appellate court and get a ruling from the United States Supreme Court on Trump's immunity claims as it pertains to 
the charges against him relating to January 6th. Um, what is Jack Smith trying to do there, and what would your adjudication of uh, his um, his petition be? Well, I, I think the important thing here, this is about the immunity um, claim that Trump makes, that he is immune from criminal prosecution for actions that arise out of his uh, constitutional duties as president. Um, that's his claim, and the Supreme Court has never ruled on it. They've ruled that uh, a president has immunity from civil lawsuits uh, arising out of his official duties, but they've never ruled on the criminal prosecution question, although they have suggested that they wouldn't give the same protection from criminal prosecution as from civil. So that's, that's the issue. But the importance of it um, is just as important as the substance of it is the timing of it. The preference in federal law is that you don't get pretrial appeals. The idea is that you're supposed to try the whole case in front of the lower court, the district court, the trial court, uh, and then the case goes up on appeal to the circuit court and then finally to the Supreme Court. But there are some issues like double jeopardy and immunity, which go to the question of whether it's appropriate to try the person in the first place. And with respect to those issues, you do get pretrial appeal. And the reason that's important here is Trump's strategy is delay. He wants to get the case put off beyond Election Day, because if he wins the election and there's a new Republican Justice Department, he'll get them to dismiss the case, and then he won't have to face it. So the Democrats are in a a lot of haste to get the case tried. For one thing, they're worried that if Trump wins, he'll never be you know, tried for these terrible crimes that he committed uh, that are hard to even explain to people. Um, but the other thing is they, want, they have always wanted this arrangement so that they could indict in a way that galvanized the Republican base and has helped Trump in the primary process. But then they've wanted to switch to trials where they could get like the icky information about Trump out in the public domain. And they figured and have always figured that that would help them with the general election, particularly if they get him convicted. So they're in a hot panic to get him convicted. What Smith is worried about is losing his March 4th trial date, because if Trump gets to appeal to the D.C. Circuit and they take their time and then he gets to appeal to the Supreme Court, the March 4th date won't hold. And the later it gets, the harder it is to schedule a trial right before Election Day because the Justice Department purports to follow this rule that they uh, try not to do things that are going to influence elections. Um, so that's the state of play. I think Smith, to me, he's making a mistake because I think he's much more likely to win in the D.C. Circuit. And then he could probably convince the Supreme Court not to take the case because the Supreme Court could always tell Trump, you know, if Trump was the one doing the appealing, Supreme Court could always tell Trump, we're going to side with the D.C. Circuit for now. And if after you have a trial and there's an appeals process, you want to come back to us and raise the um, the immunity, we'll hear it then. The Supreme Court can do that. And that would keep them out of the politics of 2024. But instead, what Smith has done is he's trying to cut the D.C. Circuit out which I think is foolish because now he'll be in the Supreme Court without what he would otherwise have had, which is probably an opinion that he likes from the D.C. circuit. And in the Supreme Court, he could lose. 
Well, the, you know, the, the I don't th- think he's going to lose, but I, I think he could lose. Well, I mean, the other thing, though, too, you know, the, the Supreme Court justices don't uh, they're not, uh, you know, sealed away in hyperbaric chambers. They know what's going on and they see what right. Jack Smith is uh, attempting to do, which uh, you're describing, which is he has a political agenda that is, right. uh, uh, you know, for him that dovetails with his legal strategy. But ultimately, it, there's a heavy dose of politics influencing this uh, petition that he has filed with the Supreme Court, and I would think that uh, a number of justices would recoil at that. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, I think this is very offensive to my mind because prosecutors are not supposed to be concerned about pardons. They're not supposed to be concerned about election dates. They're not supposed to be concerned about what the outcome of the election might do. Their only job, Smith's only job, is to represent the United States and present its case the best he can whenever the trial gets scheduled to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not for him to worry about whether Trump might pardon himself or Biden might pardon him if the politics spun that way. Or You don't worry about that. That's not your job. That's politics. You're supposed to stay out of politics. So the court is going to understand that he's gotten himself in politics. And the other thing, Dan, I think that the court might be offended by, and I, I I've thought all along Trump needed to do whatever he could to get this case in front of the Supreme Court, uh, and now Smith is doing it for him. But, you know, these, these four charges that he's brought are very dicey interpretations of federal law, including some Supreme Court precedents. I mean, the Supreme Court just in the last year held that um, a fraud case in federal law has to be a financial crime. And that fraud is not a concept that you can use to impose somebody's idea of what good government um, Mm -hmm. is like. I think he's going to have a very hard time with the fraud on the government charge, which is the main charge in this case. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to like it. And I think he's basically throwing the door open for them to have a look at his indictment. And they may not like his indictment, just like they may not like that he's worried about the politics of the election. So with respect to Trump's representation, you know, they're making a double jeopardy argument related to the impeachment and that trying him for something that he was impeached upon is double jeopardy. I don't really find that persuasive, but I do find more persuasive what you were just talking about. And so what what is the Trump team strategy? Are they just sort of arguing in the alternative, throwing all the arguments out there or are they um, are they making a mistake, strategic mistake? Yeah, I I think the the. Uh, double jeopardy arguments frivolous. Um, even if the even if Trump had been impeached for exactly what he's being tried for, like the exact same conduct, um, and he wasn't. He was the impeachment was called incitement to insurrection. There's no incitement charges in the criminal case. But double jeopardy doesn't create any. I'm sorry, impeachment doesn't create any double jeopardy protection. So. The fact that Trump was acquitted in the impeachment trial doesn't give him any double jeopardy protection from a later prosecution. The Constitution explicitly says that the president can be tried later. And the fact that it says if he's convicted, he can be tried later, that doesn't mean that he can't be if he's acquitted. Uh, that's not what that provision of the Constitution means. So I think that's a, that's a loser of an argument, and if I were they, I would drop it. Um, the, the argument that I think is profoundly important is this idea of whether a president should be open to prosecution for 
actions he takes that are within the ambit of his Article II executive powers. The Supreme Court has given the president's immunity from civil suits precisely because we don't want presidents worried when they're wielding power in the public interest that they might be sued later for their actions. I think, you know, to, to say that that makes sense for civil liability, but not criminal liability is not an argument that, that makes sense to me anymore. It might have made sense at a time when we had a norm against politicized prosecution. But now I think every president, this, what this case shows is every president is now going to have to worry that an administration of the opposition party, when they come in, they may look at what policy disagreements they had and try to make criminal cases out of them. I think it's a crazy banana republic style of governance, but, you know, it's happening before our eyes. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York, contributing at our National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thank you, as always, for your insights. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois, but you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan to have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when you're moving out. When you're moving out Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I just want to make sure people understand the uh, Illinois General Assembly and Governor Spaulding were hard at work in 2023. There's uh, a number of new laws going into effect January 1st that um, you might want to know about. Uh, minimum wage for non-tipped workers increases to $14 an hour for tipped workers to $8.40. Now, that's no good for Brandon Johnson in Chicago, but that's the state law. Uh, Non-citizen immigrants who have a work permit will be eligible to become police officers. We've talked about that. Right. Non-citizen immigrants can get a standardized driver's license, replacing the current temporary visitor driver's license. Well, they're going to stay, so why not? And they're going to vote eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Of course, uh, as we uh, heard from uh, our friend Clay in Libertyville earlier in the uh, show, Anybody who owns uh, one of the 170 sport rifles that have been arbitrarily banned must uh, register them with Illinois State Police by January 1st. Sure. Um, Creation of a statewide PTSD mental health coordinator. Interesting. Yeah, well, that's good. He created our PTSD. Yeah, about, uh, I would say, about 80% of the population suffering from some form of it. Uh, Law enforcement is prohibited from sharing license plate reader data with other states to protect women coming to Illinois for an abortion. Yeah, mm -hmm, right. What about uh, people that are wanted in another state for other crimes? Right. Then can we read their license plates? Hmm. Defunds libraries that remove controversial books. 
you know, like, um, I don't know. Gender queer. Well, well, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, defunds libraries that remove, right. That would remove the books that have been, uh, inculcated into the curriculum. Well, it's pornography, but okay. Mm -hmm. Multi-occupancy gender neutral restrooms to be installed in private and public Illinois businesses. Mm -hmm. Gender neutral restrooms in private businesses too. Uh huh. Dan, have you shared a restroom yet with a woman? Oh no, wait, you don't live up here. Let's see. Just anything else that's important. Creation of a task force to end homelessness. That should. Got that taken care of. Then the homelessness problem. Got the task force. Roosevelt Road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A homeowners and renters insurance companies cannot refuse coverage for certain breeds of dogs. That's important. You want to really get well, into the uh, bulls, the know, details. Really against. get into the details. This is all, of course, perfectly acceptable province of state government to regulate the minutia of people's lives and uh, the operation of their businesses and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, drug manufacturers will be prohibited from price gouging generic and out-of-patent drugs. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, price yeah. controls are always good. No, not never arbitrary. Uh, yeah, so I mean, some of the, those are some of the highlights. Um, yeah, a lot of good news for people in this country illegally, and for um, people that are in this country legally, but not like super um, jacked to um, follow the law. Um, for people that. Um, are advocates of um, the reduction of individual freedom. So there's a lot there, a lot there to, uh, you know, hang your hat on. For more on this, please be joined by Ted Dabrowski, president of wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Some uh, big happenings this year in the state. Um, Really, um, I don't know, you know, continuing the renaissance that uh, has accompanied Pritzker's rise in Illinois. It is, and it's it's amazing. They're, they're able to do whatever they want, whenever they want. Uh, you know, each each law makes us a little less free, uh, gives the state a little more power, and that's pretty much how they all are. Um, it means you know, less and less local control over things. It means higher costs if not for businesses, for people, and eventually it's always the people who pay for these things. When you look at, the, you know, these this minimum wage laws, when you look at the forced uh, paid leave, they just add more and more costs. And you think that they'd start looking at some of the empty storefronts in, in different cities and, and uh, across the state, but uh, these lawmakers don't because that's not their agenda. Their agenda is, of course, to continue to control people a little bit more here and there. And you can see that in every single law that most people have no idea has been passed until you just read them out loud. Um, it's interesting. Uh, story out of North Carolina may have some relevance for that Goshen uh, plant in Mantino. I mean, that's coming to Mantino. North Carolina's bad billion-dollar bet on a struggling EV company, Vietnamese electric vehicle manufacturer VinFast, has lost $6 billion in three years, during which time the state of North Carolina has provided $1.2 billion in state incentives. 
Um, sounds like basically about the economics of the uh, Goshen EV battery plant, uh, potentially, uh, certainly with respect to those state subsidies and federal subsidies as well. And, uh, you know, then there's all these stories out about demand for electric vehicles not being particularly robust and so forth. So uh, we could see, um, you know, talk about to 40 million here, 60 million there and 100 million there with respect to, I don't know, things like spending on lodging and rental assistance and so forth for people in this country illegally. Uh, we're on the hook for in the billions if um, that uh, Goshen EV plant doesn't get profitable. Well, yeah, and I think that's the big fear. And I, it's, it's starting to crop up everywhere in the news. And I remember when, you know, when Mark, Mark and I started working on this stuff, um, you know, the, 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 everybody was still excited by all this. But, man, it, it turned quickly uh, as, as the, the subsidies for EVs start to become very clear how huge they are, you know, 50000 a vehicle. And then we're starting to see how the companies that have been doing EVs are starting to lose a lot of money and have their back off of their plans. And, uh, you know, this comes just at the time that Pritzker's bragging about having won Ocean and uh, the $536 million that the state will give in, in subsidies. And, then, of course, there'll be a property tax freeze for 30 years, so there's more money there. Uh, not to mention the <clears throat> up to $8 billion, $7.5 billion that could come from the federal government. So, you know, these things are, are massive. It's, it's uh, as we've talked about, industrial policy at its best. And what we're seeing now, though, is that uh, – Right, uh, places like North Carolina and others are, are having to back away from from. Well, they're worried about some of their quote investments they're making. Uh, you know, this is taxpayer money, and you know, Pritzker's taking a gamble because he has no idea whether Goshen is a winner or a loser. Uh, he has no idea whether EV batteries, you know, and EV cars are going to make it or not, or whether there's some new technology that comes along. But uh, he's happy to do that because you know it pads his resume, and you know, he's bragged so much about about Illinois being a a leader in the EV industry worldwide that he needed one win. Otherwise he was, you know, he was shooting blanks. Ted, let's talk about the migrant issue and how Rosemont and Cicero and Schomburg and they're not too migrant friendly. You know what I mean? No, this is also, I mean, this is, you know, the little bit of good news out there um, in that, uh, you know, Chicago is trying to get, get these migrants out of the city and, um, uh, you know, they're hoping that other cities, other suburbs pick up the pick up the, the migrants. And, uh, you know, places like uh, like the ones you mentioned are starting to put in fines. If uh, if, if, uh, if people start to house people, for for example, in hotels for longer than a month and they're, they're going to get fined, uh, these hotel owners or business owners, uh, they don't want the problem. And everybody recognizes what a big problem it is. And they're not going to let Chicago try to shove it on them. I mean, obviously, places like Oak Park will um, up to a point, but. Other suburbs are saying, no, you will not do that here. Uh, if you do, we're going to fine you. And, uh, you know, the battle, the battle's starting because the battle's obvious. Yeah, oh, I mean, well, in Rosemont, the they're going to impound the bus. Yeah. I mean, well, what, they said what, that... what, One of the law that goes into effect uh, on January 1, mm-hmm. Illinois landlords will be required to rent or sell property to uh, people in this country illegally and in Illinois. Yeah, that too. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, you, and you can't use their migrant status to determine whether you, you, you should rent to them or not, you know? Right. <laughs> It's all these, you know, the, the laws continue to go crazy, which, uh, which for me is fine because the, the crazier they get, the, the, the well, hopefully at some point we wake up, right? We're still waiting for that moment to wake up, but uh, these laws continue to get more and more extreme. Uh, this just came over the transom. Harvard board, said, Harvard board, that is, said President Claudine Gay will stay. She's saying, of course she is. And um, uh, your colleague Mark Lennon at Wirepoints 
despite the fact that uh, you know the bloodletting will be limited, is suggesting that uh, U of I might want to get attacked together when it comes to DEI. A uh, lot of infrastructure when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion personnel at universities, including state universities. A lot of focus on the status schools right now on the East Coast and the West Coast. But uh, in the middle here, I mean, I remember Mark Perry, our friend, former econ professor at Michigan, in 2018, he documented at the school at which he taught 90 people that were die administrators of one sort or another, part of the diversity, equity, inclusion, 90 different staff people that totaled $11 million plus in salary. That was five years ago. Uh, one can only hazard a guess at what it is today. And so I'm sure the same goes for Illinois. In fact, Mark Lennon was talking about the Communication 9 mandate at that school. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating that this uh, Communication 9 in Illinois has gone deep. And basically it requires, and it's, it's not mandatory yet, but it will be in a couple of years, you know, these, these professors have to do a statement. Uh, you have to write a statement that says how they're devoting themselves to equity and uh, you know, equity, inclusion, and, and diversity, of course, and what they're doing about it. And, and, and the university laid out a whole bunch of rules about you know, how you, the professor, can do such things, whether it's in your research, in your teaching, um, in your service. And uh, you, know, you go through this, these rules and you can see – you know, it says, hey, here's an example for you. If you're a law professor, uh, you can study how bankruptcy laws apply differently to blacks and whites. And then you know, if you're an engineer and there's a, a large-scale project to do Wi-Fi, you know, look and see how, it, how it's being laid out, um, rolled out in different areas. But everything has to tie in with equity. Um, and, and, you know, and it, it goes all the way down to, you know, we've talked about Nutrier. Nutrier does it. You'll have a physics class. And in the physics class, suddenly there's this equity problem, and it has nothing to do with physics, but it has everything to do with equity. Um, it, it just trickles all the way down. So, you know, but coming back to U of I, it's a really extensive uh, program, and um, we'll want to see whether they want to roll that back a little bit because it's aggressive, and you know most professors, many sorry, I should say many professors who want nothing to do with this are being forced to do this kind of stuff. Well, and the point is that it's uh, ubiquitous at state schools, too, and all the Big Ten schools, uh, Ohio State. There was an expose sure. in Ohio State and their hiring practices. And it's the same thing at U of I. We've talked about it before, the admissions practices and the hiring practices and what we anticipate in the wake of the Harvard admissions decision, which is the workaround by the institutional interests at these schools to continue to make decisions based on non-behavioral characteristics like identity as opposed to, to capacity um, through the diversity statements. We don't, you know, we, we, we're going to make subjective determinations about diversity statements that are in furtherance of our objective, goal, uh, objective goals of, you know, this many Latinos and this many Asians and this many honkies and this many blacks and this many Chinese nationals and so on and so forth. They have... Uh, a goal, and that's not going to be deterred until the infrastructure inside these schools is dismantled. Yeah, because they, they will always work around it, and, and you know we, we talked about that with the uh, with the uh, AP classes at, uh, at you know Evanston High School, where they immediately change their they just change the language, they change something to make it look like they're now back in compliance, but they're still doing the same game. What's amazing about this whole um, you know DEI is also how much people are enriching themselves. And that's been a big part of the story too. And 
and at U of I, the guy that's uh, the vice chancellor for diversity, equity, and inclusion, is making about three hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, and and you know, there's a whole bunch of work that's been done across the country showing that these these people that do this are earning you know anywhere from three hundred thousand to over four hundred thousand. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a great business to be in. And not only that, it was a growth business for the last decade, right? They've been growing their, their departments and all that, which of course then allows them to you know, spread their tentacles about how they want this DEI to be implemented across you know, the institutions. And that's, uh, that's what needs, as you said, needs to be unwound. You mentioned Evanston Township High School. Uh, there's no one more committed to uh, identitarianism and the race hustle than Evanston Township High School. So how's it working out for the kids? <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, we were a little concerned about everything we, we were hearing. And, uh, you know, you, I think, I think you were one of the, one of the, People that broke the whole thing at Evanston High School with uh, with their uh, segregated, you know, black, Latino, white AP classes, and um, you know the, the virtue signaling is so strong there. And, and, and you know, I, I would argue that probably Evanston is one of the most you know, woke, uh, progressive uh, DEI leading in, uh, institutions in, in in the country. And what was fascinating is to, to look at, the, at what goes on in 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 Evanston with regard to their day-to-day school stuff, right? There's, there's this whole debate about the segregated classes, but we went back and looked at the feeder schools and then all the way through high school. And, you know, we saw that basically just two out of every 10 blacks um, in, in the school system can read a grade level throughout the entire, throughout their entire careers. Those kids can never read a grade level. And yet they're passed through the system year after year after year. And then you get to graduation, and 90% of blacks can, you know, graduate, but only two out of 10 can read. And and you know the the, the lies and the, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the the true racism is right there that they have no more merit for their kids. There's no there's no expectations, uh, no demands. Just move them through the system, graduate them, and then act like they've done everything perfectly and that they're they're virtuous because of their, you know, their segregated classes they're trying to take care of their, their minorities it's just not it's not true it's, it's a, a falsehood ted dabrowski president wirepoints wirepoints.org all things illinois policy related thanks ted thank you guys thank you and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line hear about the big stories of the day then talk about them right here on chicago's morning answer on am 560 the answer this is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. My children go out every day searching for food. They go to the garbage dump every day, especially on Thursdays when we have seen cars and trucks bringing the trash from other cities. Many times they just don't find anything, so they come back empty-handed, and we just sit here and pray to God that the next day we'll have something, and on that day we only drink water. Of course, uh, that is uh, one of the families that uh, Food for the Poor aims to help. We're uh, in full the full throes of our Christmas holiday Food for the Poor campaign. Uh, this is uh, where we rely on business leadership and just individual donors to help uh, support the work that Food for the Poor does in Haiti and Central and South America to provide life-saving food and water 
to children and families who are on the brink of starvation because of, well, just the state of affairs in countries like Haiti, which is pretty well known. Food for the poor, again, just as a reminder, 40-year track record, provided tens of billions of dollars in food and water and infrastructure construction in these countries to save countless thousands. I, I don't know how many lives. I mean, it's it's almost um, uh, almost incalculable. Uh, and so uh, we're trying to uh, aid the effort again this year. And there are a couple of ways to do that. One is by joining our business benefactors. And we want to thank all the businesses who've signed up already, including some New uh, signatories, Morrison Security, JohnCastNews.com, Salvi Law of Lake Zurich, Arlington Heights Heating and Cooling, Earthworks, Gatto Industrial Platers, Augustino's Rock and Roll Deli, DSP Insurance, and many more. And, uh, Amy, why don't you tell uh, these other businesses how they can join these enlightened businesses who've signed up? Well, if you own a business or make the marketing decisions for your company, folks, this is the best deal in all of Chicagoland Radio. $2,500. With that, I think you could feed 65 children for a year. Tax deductible, and as a way of saying thank you, we'll give you 41-minute commercials that will air right here Monday through Friday. And uh, we've had so many business benefactors that are still our clients. Like Turnkey IT started out as a business benefactor. And look at where he is today. And uh, I mean, there's the list goes on and on of advertisers that we've partnering with now that became business benefactors. And they did it to help the kids that are in need, especially during the Christmas season um can you imagine i mean not knowing where you're going to get your next meal and that woman whose kids have to go through landfills looking for food it's just heartbreaking so if you want to be a business benefactor 847-472-8951 again it's tax deductible 847-472-8951 and ask for anjanette for more on uh, the food for the pro food for the poor campaign and how we're doing here in chicago we're pleased to be joined by anitra parmalee Uh, with Food for the Poor. Nitra, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It is my joy. I mean, Amy, when you were reading off, or Dan, when you were reading off the names of the businesses, I'm a very visual person. I'm immediately thinking that is three equivalents of a classroom of children who are going to eat for a year. I mean, what a transformation. And I'm talking about heroes like Ruth, Rick, and Sue in um, Woodridge. They gave a gift of $100 rescuing three children. They said, we're blessed. We just want to share what we have for a hero who is streaming. Stu is listening online in Charlotte, North Carolina, and said, this is my Christmas gift to honor my siblings, Bill and KO, Annie, Sheila, and Larry. He rescued 10 children in the name of his own siblings, recognizing that they've been blessed and want to be a blessing. So gifts of every kind are transformational. When you listen to Gloria's words talking about sending her children out to the landfill, not because she's a bad mom, but because they have no access to food. I mean, imagine your gift right now can make sure this Thursday is the last Thursday that she looks for food in a landfill. Suddenly, your gift transforms their lives as you provide two life-saving meals a a day for the next year with a one-time gift of $80 rescuing two children. Pretty amazing things happening. Well, and the thing, the point you make, too, about the state of affairs in a country like Haiti, I mean, 
you know, just to put a fine point on it, I mean, the, the, the situation there has been snafued for so many generations in a way that we can't practically comprehend here in America that, uh, you know, you, you, it's very difficult to break the cycle. It's very difficult when, you know, sort of food for the poor is doing the job of, of to some extent, the government, to, to, to another extent, a private sector that's um, barely existent. And, you know, so it's a rescue mission. And I think people need to appreciate that. It's, yes, you need to think long term and food for the poor does. That's why you've been at it for 40 years. But the other thing you need to do is try and get as many people on the metaphorical lifeboats right now as you can. And that's the purpose of these holiday campaigns. You're exactly right. And I I love everyone who is stepping forward and saying because of Amy sharing her passion and her heart for Haiti, because of your perspective on this situation, it's easy to be overwhelmed by the circumstances. But when we speak to our staff, we have an office in Haiti that's over 300 employees strong. And when we speak to them, they are coming up with creative and heroic ways to get food to the people. Your gift honors them. And I just think about the the pastor that said, do for the one what you wish you could do for everyone. It's easy to look at overwhelming statistics, but I encourage you, focus on that next family of four, that next cul-de-sac with your one-time gift of $320. You're rescuing eight children because of a match. Those those people, those children will have a future. They will have a 2024 because of your generosity right now. So don't be dismayed. Take action and bring hope into the midst of this darkness and potential despair. And the number to call 844-862-4673. I'll say it again, 844-862-4673 or visit 560theanswer.com slash food for the poor. And of course, we always have some naysayers who text into the program. What about the children here who are starving? But it's a different level of poverty because there's just explain that. And it's not an either or proposition. If if you if you your generosity is inspired by situations in your community, we encourage generosity. We're an organization reliant on generosity. Food for the Poor is not accomplishing these things. We're a bridge between your gift and those in need. And we're honored that you entrust your resources to us. But it's not an either or. But yes, you're exactly right, Amy. I mean, you've seen children not who are food insecure, but have no access to food and they do not have a future without your generous gift so we we honor and acknowledge that your heart is turned towards other organizations and we celebrate that but if you are wanting to make an impact on the life of a child who will not have a future without you, we encourage you. This is a way to do that. This is a vehicle to bring life and food and a future and hope to a child who this morning woke up knowing there will be no food today. Well, and I mean, let's just be real here about Chicagoland, the Chicago Food Depository. Every township government Mm -hmm. has a food pantry. I mean, to compare Chicago and the infrastructure here that's already financed by your tax dollars 
to a place like Haiti or Guatemala is to compare apples to orange groves. I mean, it's, it's just it is not the rescue mission that it is in these countries where you have a significant percentage of the entire population. So in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions that are on the brink of starvation. We talk of, I mean, you talk about it, um, and we talk about it in the context, we talked about it in the context of COVID. And again, you know, that I've gone to before, the head of the UN World Food Program at the time saying, don't shut down your economies because you're gonna cut off our supply chains. And we could see instead of 10 million people starve to death, uh, 30 million people starve to death. So you're talking about like three or four standard deviations different in these countries than anything we experience, even in the poorest communities in Illinois or America. Right. In Haiti, there are no safety nets. I remember speaking to Mary Lou and about whether she was a woman of faith. Who did she turn to in her desperation as she had nothing to feed her children in an isolated community in Haiti? And she said, I feel abandoned by my government. I feel forgotten by my community, and I don't think God sees me. And I was able to reassure her in the name of wind listeners. Oh, Mary Lude, I am here to tell you there is a reason to hope. I will go back and share your story, and I trust they will respond with generosity. So you're exactly right. We have many safety nets. We have neighbors. But in Haiti, your neighbor is suffering as much as you. Uh, again, um, $80 feeds two children for a year. I mean, that's the other thing, too. I mean, the cost effectiveness, $80 to feed two that's, children for a year. is. Think of how much money we spent at the grocery store. Yesterday, I dropped 300 at the grocery store. Easily. Uh, $80 to, to feed two children for a year. 844-862-4673 is the number. Or uh, you can visit us online, 560theanswer.com slash foodforthepoor. And uh, the Business Benefactor Program, again, that's the $2,500 tax-deductible gift to Food for the Poor. And we at AM560 give you 41-minute commercials to air on our airwaves Monday to Friday between 5 and 8 p- five a.m. and 8 p.m., our prime broadcasting hours. And um, in addition to getting a good marketing deal to grow your business, you'll be providing life-saving food for more than 62 children in Haiti to become a business benefactor again uh, the woman to call is our general sales manager. Her name is Ann Jeanette. Her number is 847-472-8951. That's 847-872-8951. And Ann Jeanette is standing by. Even if you have any questions about the program, just call her. She'll walk you through the process. And we want to thank Second, Second Option Health Solutions, their new business benefactors, DSP Insurance, Gobert's Farming, Pingree Grove. The list goes on and on. But this sells out Every year, and I, we we're not making it, we don't exaggerate on that because it does. There's you know we have a set a number of business benefactors, and then that's it. So get on it, do it sooner rather than later, and you'll be helping people in need this holiday season, and you'll be helping elevate your business to the next level. Again, Anitra, you know. uh, some parting thoughts from you. So many children have already been rescued, and I I just think of the mothers who will fall to their knees and throw up their arms when they get word that their children are going to eat for a year. But I also think of the people still in line waiting and thinking, will there be somebody to step forward and rescue my children? Will you be that one right now? Anricha Parmalee, thanks uh, from Food for the Poor, of course. Thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a joy. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else than seeing the miracles that are happening through your listeners right now. Thank you so much. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line.
You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, I just go back to the um, Glenn podcast. This is Glenn Lowry from uh, Brown University, Econ professor at Brown University. His podcast for the Manhattan Institute, uh, which regularly features John McWhorter, who's professor of linguistics at Columbia University. Uh, again, for those who have still not yet familiarized themselves with these two academics who we've referenced many times on the show and interviewed several times on this show. Uh, both are black gentlemen. Uh, John McWhorter is a Democrat. And uh, I applaud their decision to view the fall of Minneapolis, this new documentary, and comment on it, because they could have just passed it over, not want to take the heat for reacting the way they did based on what was presented in that documentary. And... Um, it's just it's just interesting to hear them almost like in real time, certainly shortly after they had viewed it, wrestling, wrestling with what they viewed versus what they thought. And I would argue most of the country thought happened on that day that George Floyd died. Listen to John McWhorter. There are three things. One, if he's saying it, in that clear, strong voice, it would appear that he could breathe, okay? So that was always a little strange. But maybe there's a point where you can say, I can't breathe, but you're getting dangerously little air. But still, that stands. Two, this is what's important. In the body cam footage, which we've never seen, George Floyd was saying, I can't breathe, when he was standing up straight and just being coaxed to get into the car. What they were trying to do was take him somewhere to get treatment because the, the drugs were severely addling his mind. And he wouldn't get in the car. And he starts saying, breathing air, standing up, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, when nobody is anywhere near his neck or anything else. George Floyd was extremely high on fentanyl and meth to an extent that could have killed him sitting in a chair. If you're on fentanyl in particular, you get something called wooden chest where you can't breathe if you've got that much in you. That's how high he was. Now, the issue is not the morality of him being high, but he was saying, I can't breathe, long before anybody had him on the ground. And then the third thing is this. What a lot of people are going to say is look at the agony of his face in the standard photo. It looks like he, he, he can't breathe. He's in agony. That grimace that we see is something that does move you, but... If you look at the body cam footage we've never seen, George Floyd had that exact same look on his face when the cops just approached his car and said, get out. He was really messed up that night. I'm not moralizing. Just because I'm wearing a cardigan doesn't mean that I don't understand the joy of drugs and liquor. But he was majorly <laughs> up. And it was a day, as, it was during the day. It was not at night, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm making it at night. But it's, it's in daylight. And he the cops come up and he's just, oh God, oh, 
don't shoot me. And nobody has a gun. You know, I, I just lost my mother. His mother died years ago. Don't, you know, don't, don't. They weren't threatening him at all. He was really, really messed up. And he had that same look on his face. So I don't think, unless this is faked, you know, here we are in the age of AI. We have to allow that just maybe. But unless that body cam footage is faked, Derek Chauvin didn't kill that man. I never thought I'd be saying that. For more on the film, we're pleased to be joined by Liz Collin, who is a multi-Emmy award-winning reporter and anchor up in Minneapolis and one of the producers of this documentary. Uh, Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for, for having me. I got to say, um, I'm in the John McWhorter camp. I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, and I think a lot of people are after they watch this film. So I guess just to um, address John McWhorter's, you know, contingency, um, not faked, not AI. You obtained <laughs> uh, you obtained this body cam video that he was referencing that shows Chauvin from behind with his knee on on Floyd, but his knee near the shoulder blade per the training manual and not on his neck. Yeah, there's so much about this um, that the public was ne- was not told. Um, just a, a bit of bit of backstory here. I was a mainstream, a longtime mainstream uh, media anchor and reporter at the CBS station in Minneapolis uh, for nearly in total about uh, f- 15 years. But um, I, w- I was also married to a Minneapolis police officer. He's since retired um, after, after all of this. But so I saw a lens in- into this very early on as to how, you know, the, the media and uh, our so-called leaders in, in Minnesota were manipulating this message. This is the first time the Minneapolis Police Department has withheld body camera footage. That's why we start the film, The Fall of Minneapolis, with that body camera footage that people should really have been allowed to see uh, from day one. Because uh, I, I think you're right, there's there's so much here that, you know, changes the, the minds of people. I, I applaud people uh, like John for, for putting that out publicly. Um, sadly, that takes courage nowadays to to speak the truth, as as we know. Um, but but yeah, there's an 18 minute interaction with with George Floyd, and we're only allowed to see the the viral Facebook video. Um, and and people should question why that was. Now you exposed the George Floyd lie. Uh, your movie came out, or the documentary, November 16th. Days later, November 24th, he was stabbed. Derek Chauvin was stabbed 22 times in prison. Do you think there's any relation between the two because he was stabbed by a former FBI informant. Yeah, so we raised the issue in the film um, about the FBI's involvement. They were called within just a couple hours of this happening on on May 25th, 2020. And uh, you're right, it's nine days later. Derek Chauvin uh, tragically is is stabbed. He's been at this this facility in Arizona with no incidents for 15 months. And then uh, this former FBI informant who has just a few years left on his sentence uh, decides to um, attack Chauvin as he's making copies um, and his back is turned in the, you know, kind of this copy room area in the prison. Um, So there are a lot of questions that, that remain, you know, his family's obviously thankful he even survived. Um, It's uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, But, but yeah, there, there's still so many, so many questions surrounding all of this. And I I get a lot more into the the case. I put out a book um, last year. It's called uh, They're Lying, the Media, the Left and the Death of George Floyd. 
Uh, but I knew that, you know, only so many people nowadays re read books or listen to audiobooks and whatnot. Um, so there's a lot more in, in there, but we wanted to take this a step further and offer this film for free. Uh, you just have to dedicate an hour and, and 40 minutes um, to, to actually watch it. Um, but to put it out in a way, um, you know, that, that people are allowed to, to see these things uh, that, that, that have been kept from them for, for so long. So how is the body cam footage, the uh, body cam footage we hadn't seen before, I certainly hadn't seen before that we were just discussing, how, how was that uh, um, kept from the public for so long? How did you obtain it? Yeah, so it's about two and a half months later uh, when it is released after it's it's leaked by an international uh, news agency. Um, that, that's kind of a backstory in and of itself. But um, there's there's a ruling made, uh, Judge Cahill, which we uh, focus on quite a bit um, in in the fall of Minneapolis. Um, he he makes some very some rulings early on, but he says that the the body camera footage, you know, in order to ensure that he can um, you know get a get a jury uh, in this case, he has to you know take take steps to to not not release things. But we've never seen that before. Um, on a scale such such as this. So we were able, you know, the the actual um, body camera footage is attached to the the court case along with all of the public documentation. People can actually see our, our documents and, and sources and such for themselves on the fall of Minneapolis.com. We've posted them all um, for, for people to see. And that was sort of the point of all of this too. This is all public information. Why, you know, why haven't news agencies really focused, uh, you know, on, um, this information from from the start. This isn't us crafting some sort of you know conspiracy theory here. These are you know public public documents. And and I saw that in mainstream media. Instead, they wanted to push this very dangerous you know divisive narrative, uh, you know about racism and you know police officers right. you know, need, did, need did, to be did, feared did, and whatnot. Did the jury see that video? The jury saw about ninety seconds of the eighteen minute interaction. What? So, but, but did they see the the portion of the body cam video that we're describing? Uh, about ninety seconds in total of the eighteen minute interaction. So, there's an entire um, section of of the film and the book um, about the actual trial against Derek Chauvin, because of right. course we know he was found guilty and, and sentenced to twenty two and a half years. But I say, you know, it's not so much what the jury was allowed to see in the case; it's what they were not, including. Uh, the uh, the training slide that that discusses MRT, the maximal restraint technique, which the officers are talking about doing uh, on body camera footage, uh, that was not allowed at trial um, at all. In fact, you have the, the chief of police and the head of training in Minneapolis talking about how that was not a part of training, despite the fact that we found, uh, you know, the, the training that dates back decades in Minneapolis and every officer, 16 of them that we interviewed for the film, had been trained in MRT. Well, what about him swallowing the drugs? I mean, I, I didn't see that before. That, did the jury, were they able to see that at, at least? Um, the uh, prosecutors basically were able to sell to the jury that it could be possible that uh, George Floyd was chewing gum um, <laughs> in that clip. Uh, so there was a there was some discussion about that, but but you're right. You have you have George Floyd dis discussing you know how he can't breathe uh, before Derek Chauvin arrives on scene. He's talking about how he just um, you know had COVID. He's resistant the entire time. He's pulled out of a cramped car, but yet he says he's claustrophobic and can't go into into a squad car. Um, he himself is asking to be laid on the ground. You have Thomas Lane calling for an ambulance. Thirty six seconds after that that happens. Um, so much, so much uh, was was kept uh, from from the public here. So, so uh, um, would you say that Arredondo, the police chief, perjured himself on the stand? 
You know, people have um, cer- certainly asked that, and I, I, I say people kind of are allowed to think whatever they, they want to think um, a- after watching the, the, the film I- itself, but but they are directly asked about this training, and it has been a part of Minneapolis police training that the farthest back we found is 1993, so that's a really a really long time um, for this for this MRT to, to be in the actual training documents. What about the coroner, the Hennepin County coroner, who um, we know from um, depositions in the civil case filed by a former Hennepin County assistant state's attorney that he uh, allegedly said to her, what do you do when the actual, when, essentially when the truth doesn't comport with the accepted narrative uh, in terms of no asphyxiation, that was not the cause of death, to then testifying at trial that it was asphyxiation, the cause of death. Yeah, so we get into the, to that in, in the book and the film as well. You have George Floyd's autopsy done within 12 hours of his death. They obviously have to wait a bit for, for toxicology results, but very early on, no strangulation marks, no bruising on the neck, um, three times the lethal limit of fentanyl in his system along with methamphetamine. Again, he just recovered from COVID. He had 75% blockage in one artery. There's a tumor that many have said required more testing, um, but instead they withhold that from the public and you have sort of these backdoor meetings with prosecutors that go on over the course of the week. Now, keep in mind, this uh, this autopsy and the body camera footage is all available uh, before any buildings burned to the ground in, in Minneapolis or, you know, all across the country as well. Um, so they had an opportunity to to put out the, the truth or, or at least the full story very early on. Um, but you have sort of this this back and forth with prosecutors and, and Dr. Baker as the narrative changes. And then you have the autopsy released just a few hours before George Floyd's family. Uh, releases their own autopsy, and uh, you have the media glom on to that autopsy, which they refer to as an independent autopsy, which it's obviously anything but, um, with these people who never even examined George Floyd's uh, body. So there is much to say um, about about that in, in both the book and, and the film. What kind of feedback have you been getting from people in the community? And any threats at you all? Know- yeah, I think um, overwhelmingly uh, it has been positive. It's been um, a relief as far as I think people still do believe in the truth. I think we're up to about five million views just putting this out, um, you know, a f- few weeks back now, which is which is amazing because, of course, the mainstream media has ignored it completely, as I expected. <laughs> um uh, so it's just sort of been been word of mouth and this grassroots uh, effort with with sharing on social media and whatnot. Um but a lot of people um, have, you know, th- thanked us for, you know, setting setting the record straight in in a way. And and if there is bad feedback, it's always it's always the same, name calling. Uh, you know, she's married to a cop, so you can't believe her because you know that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, but nobody is disputing the the facts of this, and I think that that alone speaks for itself. The thing that uh, after watching the film that I, I just was perplexed about um, is the, all of the uh, police officers that are interviewed. Uh, as well as Chauvin's mom. Why was none of this brought into the public arena? Why was not his defense counsel, uh, defense attorney, sh- shouting from the rooftops, you have to see the entire thing. You ha- look, at this, look at this segment of the body cam footage that we see in your film. Look at the training manual that goes back 30 years. Um, listen to the, the training officer that called... Uh, uh, King, the one of the best recruits he's had in, in his entire career. Th- this is all um, new, it seems to me. And if so many of these people had this opinion from the get-go, 
why didn't any of them um, amplify their viewpoints and and the information? Yeah, you know, and I think you're asking a lot of the same questions that 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 I've had um, all along. But you know, in, in Judge Cahill's ruin, ruling, he did not allow so much um, to uh, be, be shown to the jury. And also, you have a jury that's not sequestered in this case, so they're sort of paraded in and out of the Hennepin County Courthouse each and every day as they're surrounded by barbed wire and national. Yeah, but even more important, the fact that they weren't sequestered is even more important to put it into the public arena in real time. You know, and you also have um, two floors uh, of the Hennepin County Courthouse taken up by prosecutors in this case. They give prosecutors two floors of the Hennepin County Courthouse. And it sort of was this David and Goliath situation with um, the defense attorney, just uh, Eric Nelson, working alone um, on this. And I shouldn't say alone. He obviously did have a, a bit of, of help. But but I also think that you had a community permeated by fear. You had, uh, you know, 1,500 businesses damaged or destroyed in the riots. Several people died. Um, and this is where the, the trial is an unfolding as well. So I think there is a lot of shoulda, woulda, coulda that, that could go around and certainly be used for, for discussion. Um, and, you know, and even three years later, um, there's still a lot of that that fear there. But that that's sort of the, the part of the, the film that I hope people will, um, you know, really take note of. You have Alex King talking about this. Is this what you want for your justice system in this country, that, that we just give the justice system, you know, to the mob? Are we okay? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the media and politicians manipulating this message? And then here we are, three years later, having to deal with the the consequences uh, of uh, all all of that. And I will say that that a lot of this was sort of put out there, but the media ignored it for the, for the most part. They you know they they refused to to even care about the facts here. What about the twenty seven million dollars that his family received? I know he has five kids with what, four different women, ages six to twenty two. Who who got what? I'm I'm not sure as to how they they divvied up the the money. I'll I'll be honest there, but I think the important part is that 27 million dollars was awarded to George Floyd's family during jury selection right. in Derek Chauvin's case. So what kind of message you know does does that send to to the jury as well? And also I will say that you have um, a city council member who who handles those type of payouts and whatnot, and that city council member in this case is uh, the son. Uh, Jeremiah Ellison is his, is his name, but the son of the attorney general of Minnesota, who was basically leading up the prosecution uh, of this case, uh, Keith Ellison, a longtime, you know, cop hater. That's well documented uh, in his his time, and also um, an Antifa supporter, also well documented with things he's posted on social media and such. So, and there's just a lot of questionable things. You kind of have the perfect players in the perfect positions in Minnesota for this for this to happen here. And one other um, uh, important piece of evidence, um, the uh, response time for uh, EMS. You made mention that the call was made 36 seconds into uh, George Floyd being on the ground for uh, medical assistance, and it didn't show up for something like 20 minutes because of miscommunication between fire and, and paramedics or something like this. Um, was, was that um, included in the trial? So it sort of explains why... Uh, Chauvin and the officers are there sort of standing over George Floyd. They're they're waiting for the response to the call for medical assistance that they actually made properly. Yeah. So you have uh, Thomas Lane, as you said, make this call 36 seconds later. But then they're, they're still wondering, you know, what what's going on. So you have them sort of downgrade their force on George Floyd, uh, you know, as as for policy. Um and even in, in, in documents, Thomas Lane talks about how they think that 
that George Floyd is is passing out. And it's not uncommon for that to happen um, and for, you know, a suspect to be uh, to be unruly and combative, you know, if they come come back very quickly, which which has happened uh, before. We obviously have the benefit now of knowing what what happened with George Floyd, but the officers were not aware um, on on the scene. And, and remember, this is three years ago before fentanyl kind of is what it is now. And, you know, the, the officers are rookie cops and they didn't completely recognize the, the medical distress clearly that George Floyd was was in um, because he had been talking and walking and combative the, the entire interaction with with them. Um, so you have them wondering, you know, where, where the ambulance is because the, the well, the fire station is actually just a couple blocks away. Um, so the, the fire rig arrives 20 minutes later. You're right. It's the um, ambulance that does come um, in just under 10 minutes, which is still a very, very long time. Right. Right. Um, and, and you have the, the fire truck who admits on the body camera footage that they went to the wrong address. Um, and there, so there's just, and none of that, and you're right, none of this is allowed in, in trial. Uh, Judge Cahill also did not allow uh, the, the problematic EMS response um, to, to be heard uh, in, in the case. Has, has the Floyd family uh, responded at all to the documentary? Uh, not that I have, have seen, no. Mm-hmm. Ben Crump? Uh, <laughs> he hasn't yeah. shown, she hasn't shown back up in Minneapolis, no, haven't heard from, haven't heard from him yet. And no local media response or just ignoring you at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly done a lot of media with, with honest people who care about the truth, but <clears throat> it does kind of prove my point, excuse me, about the mainstream media because it's been crickets. <laughs> Liz Collin is a multi-Emmy award-winning reporter and anchor uh, up in Minnesota, Minneapolis. Uh, she is the one of the uh, producers of this documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, which, as she mentioned, is free. I watched it on Rumble. You get a Rumble and I'm yeah, sure a lot of other YouTube places, too. Yeah. Um, the Fall of Minneapolis is the film. Liz Collin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, you guys. And, yeah, just thefallofminneapolis.com. All the inf- information oh, yeah. is there. there thank go. you so much for your support of the film. Oh, thank you. God bless. Fallofminneapolis.com, mm-hmm. right, the website, the documentation. Yeah, great stuff. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773 767-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.